0: Welcome to episode 22 of the 905er podcast. I'm Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. few things tell us more about who we are as a society than how we treat our most vulnerable. How we treat those who used to care for us, but who are now too old to care for themselves. How we treat those born with challenges of whatever sort that mean they will need 24-hour professional care for their whole lives. There's been a concern about long-term care in Ontario for years, if not decades, but no recent provincial government has treated it as a priority. Now COVID-19 has lifted the curtain on both the weaknesses of long-term care and asked questions of every single one of us as to what we are willing to sacrifice for the sake of our oldest and our most vulnerable. As COVID's second wave has taken shape, it initially seemed not to be making headway into long-term care. The province and some of the municipalities talked constantly of the need to keep restaurants, bars, and gyms open, and for schools to be open and have class sizes set hardly smaller than in a regular school year. The price of that freedom has been long-term care residents locked away from family members and held under restrictions that some would argue would border almost on the inhumane if they were used in a prison. Today, we speak to two people with direct experience of loved ones living in long-term care during COVID. Laura Meffin lives in Markham. Her daughter, Emily, is 21 and suffers from a rare degenerative condition that requires around-the-clock care, and she lives in long-term care nearby. Jill Davis is someone familiar to many people in Halton as the former long-time editor of the Burlington Post. Her mother is in long-term care and suffers from dementia. Their stories, which you'll hear today, speak to the almost inhumane requirements that we are asking of family members in our attempts to keep COVID away from long-term care. Yet at the same time, the province has been fighting what seems now to be a losing battle to allow the rest of us to live with minimal restrictions. Please listen to Laura and Jill. So welcome, Laura and Jill, to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, we'll just sort of start off with you, Laura. Um Could you tell us a little bit about your daughter, Emily, and your story since the start of COVID and and how that's all worked out so far?
1: Okay, great. Thank you for having me. Uh, Emily is 22 years old, and she lives at a care facility in Markham. Uh, She's been there for three years now, and uh, at the beginning of April, uh, she was participation house was locked down and we weren't able to to go in and see her and then um, at the beginning of April uh, we got notification that there was an unknown outbreak so we made the decision to bring Emily home because we were also told that Emily did not have any symptoms so we brought Emily home my husband and I picked her up Um, we were wearing masks and we're really careful. And then Emily and I quarantined upstairs. Emily is in a wheelchair and is in, is developmentally delayed and physically um, disabled. So we were upstairs because I had all her equipment, ceiling lift, and and that um, able to go and and do the bathroom facilities up there with her bedroom. And uh, we were hoping that she did not have get COVID. Um, then um, it was uh, the night of I- April 9th that she started having um, some pain in her legs and she had a really bad sleep. The next morning, um, we woke up and we heard on the news that Participation House had Um, COVID in there and uh, I think that was one of the most devastating things that I've ever heard Um, probably um, worse than having Emily being diagnosed with her genetic disease because we didn't know what that was going to be like Um, COVID had just started and we just We were devastated. We didn't know if she was going to be able to survive COVID with her condition. Um, So then um, a few nights after on the Sunday, I started getting um, symptoms. And then Sunday morning of April 12th, um, I was really, really bad. Emily, I was upstairs quarantined by myself um with Emily and nobody could come up and help me and that was that was so hard to to realize that I was so sick and I had to c- take care of my disabled daughter and she no one would come no one would be able to come up and help me everybody would bring food or anything but I could not get any help um but later that day um Emily started having trouble with breathing and we had to call 911 and she the ambulance came and they um took her to the hospital and she had to go by herself um we couldn't go in with her at all and uh so she was in the hospital for 3 3 to 4 weeks um, because at that time, Participation House, they were um, severely understaffed and the hospital actually came in and helped them out. And then eventually Emily um, was released and we made the decision to put her back into Participation House because they did have the nursing help Um and uh, so she's been there ever since. And um, since April 12th, I have not been able to hug my daughter. Um, I've not been able to be six feet um, close to her. Um, and it's it's been really, this has been one of the hardest things that our family
0: has ever had to deal with. So quite apart from dealing with the COVID at a very early stage where no one knew really very much about it. And like you say, you you almost become immediately a kind of pariah that no one can touch or help or anything. Your daughter, obviously it it does, you know, things like giving hugs. You can't explain to her why you can't do that. So she would naturally, every time she sees you, she's happy to see those kind of normal family interactions are not available to you now. Uh, And obviously that's one of the hardest things
1: yeah um Emily's uh communication like she has um limited communication she can talk but her communication is is through hugs and through touch and um also too like when Emily would come home um, from participation house for a weekend she would need a hug for me and she would just grab hold of me and she would just let everything go just like you would do when you were a child um, with your mom that you were at school and you had such a hard time and you came home and just let everything go and that's what Emily used to do that she would just unburden everything on me and now she can't do that she has not been able to give me that hug she's not been able to release um, all those anxieties, everything for her, and it, it's really it's traumatic for both of
0: us. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Now, just bringing in in Jill, uh, you you also have a family member in long term care. more what we're used to from the news, I guess, and that it's your mother, but perhaps you could give us uh, just a, 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 a picture of of what life is like with her and how you interact with her at the moment in uh, in her care.
2: Well, thanks for having me on. And first of all, Laura, your story. Oh, boy, you would make me go next, wouldn't you? Yeah, that, <laughs> that brings tears to, to the eyes. I don't know um, how, how a mum gets through that. And, and Laura, I just want to ask you, are you okay now? Did uh, you recover okay?
1: Uh, Yeah, I'm still one of the long haulers. I have shortness of breath. I am starting to feel a little bit better that I will be getting, you know, over this. But for the longest time, I've been on inhalers and other medication for the COVID.
2: Well, just uh, from me personally, um, I, I hope you get better soon. And uh, I'm pretty sure the stress of everything is not helping you get on that road to recovery. So uh, my fingers are crossed that we can get through this um, uh, a little faster than than I had hoped.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, Thank you so much, yeah. Jill. That really means a lot. Uh,
2: well, my mom, uh, she's in uh, a long-term care home uh, in southern Ontario. Uh, first of all I want to say it's the facility itself is quite small, um, very dilapidated and when she went in there on a crisis um, case I thought oh my god my mom's going in here but she's got amazing care and quite honestly that's all I could hope for especially now and um i'm we're trying our best to to communicate with her and i and i do it through videos and photographs uh two to three times a week and i send photos and i know that they're printed out and they're put up on her wall she may not necessarily know who's all in them and they may be doing it for more for me than they are for Mum. but uh Mom has uh dementia um, she also has mental health issues. So the combination of the two, I'm never too sure what we're going to get when we, uh, visit with mom. Um, when it started really for us back in March, because an upper respiratory virus was going around the long-term care facility. And my brother and I were one of the last people to, to see Mum then. And we both got very sick. Um, and I, in fact, we were sick for about five weeks and as we been sitting there going, is this upper respiratory or is this it? Um, but both of us recovered, but I, I'm pretty sure it was just a, a nasty virus, but they had shut it down early. So in some sense, I think sh- they were lucky because they hadn't touched with, got COVID in, in that particular facility. Um, but I've never knocked seen my mum and uh over all these years and not being able I can't talk to her on the phone because she really doesn't understand who's on the phone so these visits are very important and she obviously doesn't know why the heck I'm wearing a mask um I'm very confused and doesn't understand why I can't go fuss about her which I would do and you know get her blanket Cuddled up beside her or brush her hair. That's the one thing she just loved. And I used to get Pond's cream, put it on her face and just make her feel a little bit better. And and I could bring a tiny bit of joy back into her life. And I think what COVID has done has taken the colour out of our world. It is, we cannot do the simplest or the smallest things for the people that we love and care for. And all we can do is sort of sit back. And this is where I'm I, I won't go into a rant, I promise. But when I, <laughs> I see <may> <laughs> people, when I see people who don't give a damn about wearing a mask and doing hugs, not masks, you have no idea what you're doing to the people who so want to be with loved ones but can't. And there seems to be such an atmosphere of selfishness and self-entitlement with this virus we're all in this together oh i don't think so um
3: Um, uh, well on on that so i'll
2: stop now see i was going
3: off on a tangent Uh, it's a good segue uh into what i want to chat about jill and that the the reason why we we want both of you on was that both of your your loved ones are essentially governed governed underneath the long-term care uh policies um
2: (laughs) such as they are
3: (laughs) well and that's the thing is that one of the things that Roland and I have been kind of frustrated with over this, the past few months is that um, right now, if you, you, the four of us want to get together on a patio to have a pint of beer and a glass of wine and have this discussion over oh. a, a patio or a cup of coffee, take a walk through the park. There is absolutely nothing stopping us from doing that. Um, right. However, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Laura and Jill, if you want to take your loved one's out for just a simple walk in the park, just to, to enjoy a, a nice, nice day, especially okay. when we just came out of a, a good, a good mm-hmm. stretch of warm weather, you're not allowed to, because these policies says for some reason, your loved ones have to be isolated and kept away from the rest of us. And, uh, I have, I have thoughts on that, but you know what, I'm going to pass off to the two of you to kind of chime in. Cause you're the ones who have, who are mostly impacted on that. Um, Laura, why why don't you go first and just maybe give us your thoughts on that kind of discrepancy in uh, public policy?
1: Uh, This is, is, it really bothers me because with Emily, I can go to do a window visit with her and I can see the staff just wearing the mask and they can give her a hug, they can brush her hair, they can do everything around her but yet as her mother, I am not allowed to even be six feet from her. Um, Just recently I had to go to um, the care home and show them how to put Emily into the standard. So we were outside, they put full PPE on me. So I had um, the gown, the gloves, the mask, the face shield, everything. And there were 10 people around her um, that were staff members to show her them how to put Emily in the stander. And I was not allowed to be six feet from her. Um, I had to show them. And one time I got a little too close and they were like, no, you need to back up. And, but yet they're just in masks. I'm in full PPE and I'm not even allowed to touch my daughter. And this is just driving me crazy. Um, other um Other residents in care homes, children are allowed to go to school. They're allowed to interact with teachers, EA staffs. They're allowed to go to medical appointments and be around doctors and nurses and physiotherapists who are from outside the agency and the home. But yet, as her mother, the one person who would be devastated if anything happened to her that my life would change forever but yet the staff it would it would hurt them it would devastate them but not as much as it would be me i am not allowed to be that person to come in and comfort and be with my daughter and it's it's not right it really like it just boggles my mind of why they cannot have us as family members there with full PPE and safety protocols I just I don't understand the the logic of that.
0: Obviously we don't you know we're all desperate to keep COVID out of long-term co-homes and I get that but it it's that to an extent, it seems that, you know, the 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 price of a fairly, at present, fairly relaxed attitude to what we can do. I mean, Joel said we can meet on a patio. Frankly, you can go to a restaurant in Burlington or anywhere in Halton and sit down inside with a friend, with friends, at a table in a way that doesn't, isn't remotely um, Safe as far as I can see, uh, yeah. And you're paying the price for that because it's like, well, you're an outsider. Therefore, we cannot trust you at all.
3: Uh, that that mm-hmm. seems like it's back to front. Yeah, uh, Jill, do do you want to uh, to weigh in with uh, your perspective?
2: I, I I do, but I wish I didn't keep following Laura because it just chokes me up. <laughs> because I just can't. Okay, you'll, you'll go
3: first next time.
2: <laughs> okay, I just can't imagine as a mother how, how absolutely horrifying that is. You know, I, 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 my thoughts are with you because you just would like to, that's it. I'm going in, I'm going in for that hug. And, and, uh, you know, to, to have to be sort of like turned away from your own daughter, I, I just uh, can't imagine that emotion and I you know I can have sympathy but I can't have empathy because I have no idea how how you do it to be honest with you Um,
1: yeah the the problem is is if I do go in for that hug or if I'm too close I know I'm afraid that I will not be able to go in and or go and see her and that I will be pushed out again because I broke the rules so you have to really be tiptoeing around
2: I know. And and I, you're remarkable. That's all I can say. Just remarkable. Um, For my mom, they would have the outdoor visits, which (laughs) sound good in theory, uh, but they had her outside with a a six foot table between us. And my mom's hard of hearing. She hasn't had a doctor in to clear out the earwax, but she's hard of hearing. The traffic noise on the street with the motorcycles, the school bus, the dump trucks going by. She couldn't hear us. They tried to put uh, headphones on her and give us a speaker. But because of her dementia, you know, get this off my head, right? So that doesn't work. That It wasn't going to work. And so basically, we spent a half an hour shouting through a mask. And she's going, what? And sometimes because of that frustration, her dementia would kick in, she would get angry, and our visits would turn into a complete chaos and someone would have to come and get her. Um, I remember one time specifically, a wasp came by my mom's hand. And my reaction is, I got to get rid of that wasp. I can't have it land on there. But So I had to go scrambling to find someone to get the wasp away from my mom. And then it was then I realized that, you know, we as a society, something is very screwed up here. And as I said, the outdoor visits did allow me just to see her to make sure that she was okay, that she was obviously eating Um, during a, a lockdown that they had for two weeks where the seniors kept locked in their homes. My mom didn't understand that. Her mental state was horrific. She wouldn't eat. They wanted me to talk to her FaceTime. Well, you know, with dementia, she, she hadn't a clue what the hell FaceTime is. And I'm trying to tell her to eat. And the, they're trying their hardest. These PSWs where my mom are and the nurses, they're beautiful souls. They are. Um, but seeing my mom so desperate locked in a room, it was her biggest fear in life growing up. She never wanted to be, quote unquote, locked away. And I felt I have let her down terribly.
0: It's um, just to explain to listeners, I also have someone in long term care in the UK and uh, obviously have family members over there who are more directly involved in. in exactly the same situation as you're involved in. And yeah, boy, does FaceTime not work with someone with fairly advanced dementia? It does sure Even with your mm. daughter, Emily, Laura, I'm sure it's yeah. far from ideal. Because um, uh, you can't understand it. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it means nothing to them. They don't even know, in my mother's case, doesn't know what she's looking at. Um, but actually that leads on to another thing, which is the design of the buildings that we Put people into that they are not designed to control disease very often, even though these are places that are meant to care for people and keep them healthy. Um, I'm very, very fortunate in that the place where my mother is was designed for people with Alzheimer's to kind of reproduce a family. Uh, Although it's quite a large building, it's all completely isolated into groups of about 10 people. That's beautiful. So their 10 people can be shut off from the rest of the building, but they've still got their usual community. Basically, that's my mother's life. Um, And I suspect, I mean, I don't know, but I suspect that that's very rare everywhere, including Canada, Mm -hmm. and that a situation like that could have a transformative effect on people like your mother because you're never going to be stuck in a room. Um, You're going to be at worst, stuck with your usual group, which is the only people my mother interacts with anyway. Um, so I, I just wonder if you could both maybe comment on that, on the kind of design of the buildings. When I mean, you mentioned, Jill, that the, the staff are wonderful, but the building is not so great.
2: My mom is in a dilapidated old house. Let's just and it was supposed to have been torn down several years ago and a new building um, constructed. Well, of course, that didn't happen. And that's where we go into the whole crisis of long term care. There are no beds. You really have to get on a list now. I think all of us should. Uh, It's it's years of waiting. My brother and sister and I, we were told to go and pick our top five Um, long-term care facilities in the city in which she resides Mm -hmm. well of course there's no beds there was no chance and then my mom was in a retirement home which unfortunately a lot of retirement homes now are becoming nursing homes because they're and and they don't have the staffing or the equipment to care for them properly and my mom became desperate she fell four times on one weekend four times to Joseph Brandt Hospital, there is a level of care, but a retirement residence doesn't have yeah. the, the nurses that's required for long-term, like as mm-hmm. in long-term, I should say. And finally, you know, the, the doctor, at, I guess, um, at the um, ER said, you know, hey, what's she keep coming back for? She's She broke her shoulder. She had a broken nose. Um, and uh, sadly, it that's when it, she became a crisis person. And then you have to take a bed wherever it's offered. Fortunately for us, it was Grimsby, so not too far out.
3: I, I think we can all safely assume, uh, and I think it's a safe statement to say that COVID-19 kind of has exposed the, uh, the gaps in our society, that the people who are most vulnerable are the ones that are bearing the burden on this. Um, people with disabilities, the elderly, uh, racialized people, et cetera, are, seem, seem to be bearing a disproportionate burden of this pandemic. Um, now, we knew that this problem arose rose up uh, back in March, April. I mean, we had the military go into our long- term care homes and facilities to help. it was that it was that bad. I, I think we all know the answer, but I'm going to send this as as individuals who are deeply involved with the, these facilities. Have you seen any? improvements uh in terms of staffing protocols or physical improvements to the facilities that your that your loved ones are in uh by the provincial government since uh let's say since april uh, have, have you have you seen like, any any financial any any improvements any physical changes any staffing protocols that have changed that more staffing new faces that have come in to help out at all because we've been told that the province is on top of it I'm just wondering you you tell me from the ground
2: I don't know if it's the province on top of it. I do believe the care home that Mom is in is run well, and they're on top of it. um I have seen obviously the you know the PPE that they're all wearing, but I have not been inside the home. I have mm-hmm. an immune system that's compromised and I think my doctor said, don't go in, please. (laughs) Uh, But so I have been doing my outdoor visits and I am so grateful that we have had some wonderful November days. Um, um, But now I know it's going to be window visits from now on for me. My brother is going to be the one caregiver who's going to go in. Um, But, you know, he's 69 now and he's got to look after his health as well. Mm -hmm. But I feel confident and I can sleep at night knowing that the nurses and the PSWs who are there, um, the per, yeah, the personal support workers, that they're doing a remarkable job. And I've got nothing but praise for them. I can call them. I can call, ask how mom is doing, anytime. They will try and get her on the phone if they can. They've tried to set up, you know, just little... Visits on FaceTime just so I can see her. They take photographs of her for me. Send those. I send the videos, as I said, photographs. So there is a very good communication line there. So for that, I am eternally grateful.
1: Um, One thing I've noticed is that um, with participation house that they have definitely upped their cleaning protocols. Whenever I would go into or go to see Emily during the window visits, you would see someone coming in and cleaning the, the, her bedroom. Um, There has been a lot of staff turnover, a lot of new faces. Um, So a lot of this Staff, I think, have changed. Um the pretty much the majority of the staff at Participation House, they also got COVID. Um, so I don't know if some have returned or they have gone on to a different job or if they're still out sick with um long hauler um sickness from the COVID. Um I've also um, one thing I have noticed is that with the uh, the provincial government, uh, the funding that the um, participation house gets, it has not increased. It it's pretty much stays the same. So our rate of inflation has gone up, but the amount of funding that the provincial government has not increased to participation house. So I think that is a problem that, they still have like their rent, the, everything goes up, so they have to cut back on certain services. So, what then they have to do is the staffing is probably one of the biggest costs for them. So, they you know it decrease the staff and increase the amount of um, time that they have to spend with the residents. And you know that's that's not right. Like you had need to spend more time with the residents, but they don't have the the staffing to do that, and and it's not right. The the provincial government needs to step up. They need to put in more funding for the care homes and the
3: LTCS. On that mm-hmm. note, Laura, um, I don't know if you, if you saw this, uh, it was on, came across my social media feed. Uh, David Hurley, who has another podcast called The Hurley Burley, mm-hmm. uh, this is a plug for his and no benefit to us whatsoever. Uh, but he had on his uh, on his episode, the Ontario Financial Accountability Officer. And I don't know if you saw this. The Financial Accountability Officer stated that currently the province is sitting on $9.3 billion and COVID-19 aid. That has not been spent.
2: Yeah, I saw, I heard that.
3: Now this money could be spent on our schools. It could be spent on the long-term care homes. It could be spent to... Broaden to to increase testing. It there's a, I think there's a large possibility of you to use this 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 funding. Um you just mentioned that your that your 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 system isn't is not getting the the money that it needs. What what do you what do you say to that?
1: It's so frustrating. Like if the care homes had more PPE, then maybe I would be able to actually go in to see my daughter. But right now I'm, um, because we're enhanced um, stage in Markham, that it's only a window visit or a virtual visit or outdoors and with it being too cold, it, like there's no way that my daughter, she gets too cold so fast. Um, but there was a time where we could go into a room and have our full P- PPE, but that that costs. For you know the care homes, if everybody, every family does it because it's almost like a single use, um, we need um, vaccines, we need more testing, and we need more funding. we need um, it just like Emily sits in her room, so they need more recreation programs. it's it's not it's not fair for them to be isolating, and the government needs to step up. They need to do this, and they need to care for the most vulnerable population.
3: I I, I mean, we're hearing the opposite from the opposite side of the of the argument. Let's go. Let's go from that angle. Um, We need to keep small businesses open. We need to keep the restaurants going because of the economy. You know, we 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 can't let these small entrepreneurs fail. And I I I get I get I'll be honest. I do get some of that sympathy. I mean, you you you. They, they, these people didn't aren't to be blamed for the situation, but I have a, I, I get a sense though that part of the ability for us to keep these places open is because the burden that the folks such as you, Jill, and you, Laura, are forced to bear for this. Do you, do you feel that that might be the case um, going forward? Uh,
2: Can I answer that one? I'll
3: let you. (laughs) Yes, you may. Please. Thank you.
2: Okay. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I think in this whole pandemic, we have tried to keep our lifestyle, society going, and make the pandemic work around us. Well, it's not going to work that way. We've got to work with the pandemic. And I think. Instead of going, oh well, we got to go to the gym. You know, we got to go to the theater. We we got to go eat out because that's what we do. That's what we're entitled to do. And actually, it is. And yes, it's small business. But my belief is, out of this chaos, should come innovation. Perhaps you need to reinvent yourself, maybe just for the time being. But you know, plexiglass. I think we need it. Um, there's all kinds of of things that are coming out of this pandemic that we should be producing and you know let's be creative let's not just think gym restaurant theaters parties weddings hey that has gone right now will it come back let's hope so but right now we have to work with the pandemic it's not going to work with us and I think we've really, really forgotten that part of the equation. Yes, small business, my God. Yes, the, the economic engine, we know that. Um, and of course, the premier will do everything he can for the folks, the small business. However, you won't have a small business if you don't have any clients because they filled up the hospitals. You're not going to have that. So we need a hard lockdown again right now. We can't wait. We can't wring our hands and go, oh, my God, 2,000 cases. Shut it down. Why wait till we get to Britain? Why, why do we do that?
0: By the time it's obvious, it's too late.
2: Yeah. yeah. You know what? Shake your heads, people. It's a virus. We do not have a vaccine. You got to wear your mask. You got to stay home. And that, and that is it until we get through this. We were supposed to be in it together. And suddenly, we're not. And for people like Laura and for me, families um, who have been stricken by this virus in different ways, um, you know what? I just shake my head at some of the selfish acts from people, that self-entitlement. Got to get over it. Got to get over it. Go go out running. Don't have to go to the gym. You just don't. But that's me. And I could go on, and I won't. (laughs) Um, but but i I get very very frustrated with people almost going well you know they're old or they're inferred and they're you know we you know just discard that uh part of society no no i won't and i will continue to fight for every last person and young people do get very very ill and i wish right at the start Mm. of this pandemic that they had not said it doesn't affect young people If they had just said it affects everybody, maybe we wouldn't have the situation we're in right now. But, you know, we learned as we went. And uh, unfortunately, it seems that uh, no lessons were learned by a lot of people. I mean, two weddings in Vaughan?
3: Like, really?
0: Well, and Laura, you, 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 you've had it, and you are certainly within the, the bracket of young people. <laughs>
3: oh, well, actually,
1: no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm middle-aged there. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Well, I, certainly, certainly, you know, what the people who haven't had this thing yet would say, well, you're low risk. You don't have anything to worry about. And you've told us already you're, you're dealing, with, you're still dealing with the fallout. I mean, actually, yeah. you're one of the first people I've spoken to who's actually had covid <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit what it was like to have it? How, I mean, we've, yeah, just tell us what it was like.
1: Yeah, um, it was early on when um, nobody really knew too much about what COVID was like. Um, I think one of the, the things that I had a hard time with was the anxiety. You didn't know how you were going to be. You didn't know if it was just going to be a cold. You didn't know if if it was going to be more serious. You didn't know if this is the start. Like when um, I I first started off with a headache, that was my very first symptom. And it felt like, and I get migraines, so it was a very different headache. And it felt like there was a net over my brain and squeezing it. And then my nose started running and it wasn't like congested, like a cold. It was just, it was running. And then the next morning, um, I had, uh, diarrhea and I was also, um, sick to my stomach. Um, and then my, um, my iron lever levels probably dropped and I could not think I could not speak. I was like slurring my words, um, and, uh, so that was like the fatigue that was going on and that would come and go. It was like, all of a sudden the virus kind of like attacked and then it retreated and then it attacked again and it would go through your body. So it kind of had the headache, then the headache went away. And then that's when it went into my chest and I started coughing and it felt like, um, like a croupy cough. Um, very unproductive. There was no mucus, nothing, but it was just, it was really hard to get um, the oxygen out and my breath out. Um, And that, that just creates anxiety because you don't know, am I going to have to go to the hospital? Is this it? Um, So I did a lot of stuff. I laid on my stomach a lot. Um, I also um, for the anxiety, I just thought of all of the loved ones that I had, my family, everybody who was, you know, cheering me on and that really helped bring me through some of the darkest times. Um, I, one thing that I did not have was a fever. I, really? I think it, yeah, it is it, like, everybody's like it, it, taking temperatures and I'm like, you know what? I never had a fever. Emily never had a fever. As
3: well, too. That, I've, I've, I find it interesting about your, your your description of your symptoms. I find interesting because we're we're being told, you go out, walk into a restaurant, or oh, they're going to take a temperature. Go into a gym, we're going to take a temperature, um, and that that somehow, oh, you've got a temperature. And I think what we what keeps getting missed in all these protocols is the asymptomatic and the just the random nature of what seems to be the COVID nineteen symptoms. Like you, you've described a mm-hmm. a litany of conditions that I, i'm like no like the, the the diarrhea and the being sick to your stomach i don't recall hearing anything about that um in the list of symptoms uh, of mm-hmm. COVID 19. and I, I find that it's like the, the idea like it we're still being fed this oh it's just a flu it's just a cold you know it, you know if you're young you just need to blow your nose a couple of times stay home for a day or two and boom you're you're back up and you're ready to go the, the next day and what you described sounded like absolute hell uh, to, mm-hmm. to me and I, I wouldn't i don't think i would wish that on my worst enemy so i, I mean kudos to you for going through it and i'm gl- we're very glad that you you that you're here today to talk to us and yeah. that you you're on the mend you you and uh, emily
2: yeah,
1: Did you lose that your was... sense of smell? Sorry. No, Did you... um, I, I never really had a sense of smell to begin with. So I don't know <laughs> if I lost it or not. Um, fortunately, um, that works when you're a mom. Um, <laughs> but it, like when I had all those symptoms, like the first morning was just, it was awful. And that's when I still had to take care of Emily. Mm -hmm. And still had to get her up out of bed and, you know, physically actually, you know, maneuver Emily and care for her. And um, it was, it was, I will say it was, it was hell. It was, it was so hard because I also knew. Nobody could come and help me like it wasn't like, okay, well, in like, you know, maybe two, three hours I can suffer through it and someone will come and save me and I can rest. There was no no one coming. And that was the hardest. That was just it was so hard and I had to do it. Um, and unfortunately, too, Emily, when I get sick and um, she understands that I'm not well, she will not cooperate with me and she wouldn't work with me to try and get her up. And and so I was fighting COVID. I was fighting with her. And that was it was just it was it was really hard. But one thing with COVID, it comes in waves. So then all of a sudden I kind of got better so I could deal with that. And, uh, so it would just come and go. Um, and, uh, like Emily's symptoms, she had, her legs were hurting, um, in the middle of the night. It was almost like she was having a bit of a seizure, but her legs were, um, all, um, moving and, uh, jerking. And uh, so I didn't know if that was COVID, if it was a seizure, if it was her disease. And then the next morning I found out that um, most uh, that participation house had COVID in and most likely Emily did have it.
0: I, I think probably you're about the third or fourth person who I haven't necessarily spoken to directly, but who I've known one way or another to have had COVID. I have yet to speak to anybody who it did not hit like a ton of bricks. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and it's this, again, like Joel said, this thing, well, you know, it's, um, and sure, we're hearing about the asymptomatic people and the people who who do have light instances, but I haven't come across any of those yet, just speaking anecdotally for myself. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was just looking at the numbers again last night, and I was like, well, if you take 100 people and give COVID to them, four of them will die. Um, And and we're still over four of them, actually, it's about four and a half uh and we're still treating this like it's nothing um and, mm-hmm. and 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 saying well yeah but those four people are probably old so
3: what the hell that drives it,
2: me crazy it's shameful yeah. it's
3: shameful it's
2: disgusting
3: yeah well uh, mm-hmm. i mean on, on that note roland um you know that we've had we've been dealing with the second wave i'm going to say since august Does that, that that seems about right yeah. to my recollection um, I don't think we've ever seen like a significant dip uh, since August. Since the second wave started to hit us, we've seen case numbers continually going up. Um, Toronto and Peel are now in the red zone, whatever that means. Um, okay. And I know, I, I, honestly, I honestly don't know the, the color coded charts. I just know that for some reason, when a disaster hits, conservatives seem to like color charts. It happened with the Republicans in 9 11. Uh, they they thought a color chart would save them all, and apparently that's what our government thinks is going to save us from COVID nineteen. Um, that's my opinion. The but we're, I mean, there's talk here in in, in Halton. We had the infamous Halton mayor's letter saying, "No, no, keep us open, keep us open." And now there's talk today. Um, today's November thirteenth. There's talk that there's going to be talk of a, a massive restrictions introduced here in halton because our numbers are are higher than they were when the letter was written as somebody who's had covid as people who are who are dealing with loved ones uh affected by this the policies of this disease is this are are we is this working at all like do, do do you see results at all on the horizon uh but based on the public public health policies that are being told to us
2: well, I don't think they're listening to the public health officials, and that's the problem. They're listening to the dollar. And uh, mm-hmm. instead of putting the the health of every Ontario resident first. And somebody's got into their ear that, no, 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 we're gonna try this targeted approach. We're gonna do it, you know, like a surgeon. And it, it no, it doesn't work that way. And they gotta shut it down, and they've gotta shut it down hard for a good month. And to, to get it under control, not to obviously wipe it out, but if we can get it under control until we get a successful vaccine, um, you know, give people that hope. But the way they're nickel and diming it, it's going to kill our hospitals and, and our doctors. Why, why aren't we thinking about the frontline workers? At first, we were like, cheers, and we got parades for them. Aren't they great? Oh well, now it's like they're dealing with way more. And, you know, we're putting them under stress we got to think of them. What are they dealing with as well at the hospitals? Dear God, I wish the I don't know what's gotten into him. It's like he's, you know, and don't, don't pray for me anymore and, and the good folks of Ontario, do something.
0: And don't blame us. Don't blame us for the fact yeah. that it's been spreading when you haven't, uh, and, you know, I'm really struggling not to swear right now. Um, and Laura, I'll let you chip in <laughs> as being far more informed on all of this. Uh, but yeah, that, that's when I really start to lose it, is when I see these guys who uh, two weeks ago, in Horton's case, the mayor of Oakville said two weeks ago, well, people in Horton are different. You know, we're, we're controlling this. We're, uh, we're behaving ourselves.
2: Yeah, sure we are. Look at Oakville. <laughs>
0: and two weeks now, yesterday, he said, well, guys, you know, you've really got to get your acts together because this thing is getting out of control. Well, thank Thanks very much Mayor Burton that's a real favor you've done us on the day that he said that two weeks ago that's when the people were catching the disease that we're seeing in the statistics today I'm furious <laughs> about how this has gone down and every mayor in Halton was part of that uh, that thing and they should be ashamed of themselves sorry that's very much editorializing and and not being an independent journalistic interviewer I apologize but um...
2: but that's an opinion <laughs>
0: Laura, what do you think?
1: I think um, it's the inconsistency of guidelines. It's like, you know, don't wear a mask, wear a mask. They work, they don't work. Um, You can go out to a restaurant, but you can you know, you can eat outside, but then you can have, be in a bubble, don't be in a bubble. We don't have clear guidelines of what we need to do. And that's the problem because then some people will only latch on to the easiest thing like that's just what we do um and it's it's like all the guidelines in the the homes and stuff there's no clear consistency of what needs to be done um or what we should be expecting there needs to be okay if numbers get to this high we need to shut down and that's what we need to do because Um, The other thing is that um, just recently, um, a family member had to go in for surgery because um, they had cancer. Um, Some like if we have too much, too many people in the hospital with COVID, all these surgeries are going to be pushed back. And the other problem, too is if there's too many people um, in the hospitals and overwhelming the system someone like my daughter Emily who went into the hospital and if she was um, suffering they would put her as a low priority because she is is not a productive member of society fortunately when Emily did go into the hospital
3: the doctor
1: was really good and, um, they weren't overwhelmed and they did ask me about life-saving, um, techniques. And I said, you know, Emily is still, she's young. She still has a lot of life left. She Emily does have a degenerative disease, I don't know as to what that looks like, but I would still want to try and save her life, and the doctor did agree with me. But I know a lot of families um, with um, children with disabilities and seniors, they still have a lot of life to, to live. And we don't want them to have to be put on the back burner and to be put as a low priority as well, too. So we need to keep these numbers down. You know, we need to, you know, the flatten the curve to save the hospitals. But we don't hear that anymore. We just hear about the, the businesses and being able to go out to a restaurant. And I'm all for small businesses. But uh, as Joe said, we need to reimagine what the economy is going to look like. Um and we we need to figure this out. We need to figure out how to do everything safely. And we really need to get um COVID under control.
3: We're just saying we we've got to yeah. wrap it up because uh but you know, we, as we say, we have a saying on this show, we could go on for hours. Oh, my God, yeah. And this is definitely a topic that, uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be going away anytime soon. So on behalf of uh, Roland and myself, uh, Laura and Jill, thank you very much for taking the time to come on and sharing your stories. Um, we wish you all the best to you uh, and Emily, Laura, and Jill, you and your mom and your brother and families uh, going through this. Um, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. This has been uh, a really um, good time. <laughs> well, thank you, much. And
2: thank you, Laura. Thank you. It was, oh. Your story was inspiring. Oh.
1: It was really nice meeting you, Jill. Thank you. Take care, hon.
3: That's it for this episode of The 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email. Info at 905.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905 going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905 on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time.